0: Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. On
1: this episode, farmers are seeing the benefits of cover crops. That according to a University of Manitoba survey reflecting the growing use of cover crops on the prairies. Callum Morrison, a graduate student at U of M, created the survey alongside Professor Yvonne Lawley. Morrison says this practice is in the early stage of adoption on the prairies, so there's really not that much information available as to how farmers are integrating cover crops into their operations. Callum will share the details of the survey questions and what the roughly 200 farmers had to say about their experiences in 2020. There have been many stories about farmers who have experienced problems filling their grain contracts and the repercussions. The Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan heard from about 200 farmers discussing grain production and struggles filling contracts. APAS President Todd Lewis says one of the greatest challenges is there doesn't appear to be a standard way of dealing with these contractual arrangements. Lewis will discuss the survey and what they hope to learn. After the break, Callum Morrison.
0: Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane.
1: How widely used are cover crops and what are the greatest barriers that are preventing farmers from implementing this environmentally friendly practice? Callum Morrison is a graduate student with the Department of Plant Science at the University of Manitoba. Callum, uh, thanks for joining us again. Uh, You were involved uh, in this survey and collecting information on cover crop. so what did you hope to get from this information?
0: Well we really needed uh, to conduct this survey because cover cropping is only really conducted by a small group of early adopter farmers uh, in the prairies so that means there's still a lot we don't know about how farmers are using cover crops And it means it's quite difficult for farmers to uh, start growing a cover crop because there's a lot of questions they have on their mind. And um, uh, whereas this will help to put uh, cover cropping into a prairie context so farmers can learn from what their neighbours are doing. And um, hopefully we can uh, ensure that farmers make informed decisions when they're growing cover crops.
1: So how many responses did you get, and can you give us a sense of where these farmers are located on the prairies?
0: Yes, well, uh, this was something which was uh, quite surprising to us because uh, no one had uh, done this sort of study before, so we had no idea how many farmers uh, would engage with us. So in the end, we heard from 281 farmers who grew cover crops. So these farmers were located right across the prairies. So we had farmers where you may expect uh, cover crops to be grown, such as the Red River Valley, which is uh, got one of the longest growing regions of the prairies. But we also found it um, all the way through Saskatchewan and uh, into Alberta, including some of the driest regions of the prairies, and then right the way up into the Peace River Valley so what they're showing us is that um, cover cropping isn't limited to one region of the prairie and that farmers are finding ways to adapt cover crops to um, drier conditions and shorter growing seasons by adapting their agronomy.
1: So, of course, uh, no uh, big surprise. It was very dry for a large part of uh of the prairies, so how successful were these farmers uh, this year with with their cover cropping, and was there anything to be learned or gained by using cover crops in a dry year?
0: Well, um, I didn't. I haven't asked specifically about this year. It was asking about the twenty twenty growing season. But of course, I have been speaking to many farmers, um, uh, just myself this past year, and it has been incredibly difficult, as you said. Uh, across a number of uh, regions of the prairies, And um, cover crops for some farmers in these dry times have been a a useful source of forage for um, a lot of our um, livestock farmers who were able to utilize um, the cover crops as an extra source of feed. Now, there is that risk, obviously, whenever you have a cover crop growing, that um, it will be taking up moisture. And that is uh, a fear that uh, some of our farmers have, that uh, by growing a cover crop, it may uh, uh, not be the be- uh, best thing for that farm necessarily in a dry year. However, um, a lot of the theories of cover crops is over the long term. Cover crops should be able to uh, improve the ability of soils to maintain moisture and um, also improve infiltration. So we're looking at long-term gains um but uh in a dry year it's uh going to be incredibly difficult to uh get cover crops established and um get the yields from the cover crops that people wish but uh it has been very helpful for a number of livestock farmers who need that forage
1: absolutely and i jumped ahead talking about about this year but uh what the success stories did you hear about from uh, the information you received from the 2020 cropping season?
0: Well, we heard a lot of uh, success stories. I mean, it is important to also note that uh, um, the majority of farmers also has challenges, but um, over 70% of farmers said that they saw benefits from growing cover crops within the first three years, which is um, quite amazing. Um, And these benefits uh, are quite often things such as improved soil health, uh, increased soil organic matter, uh, reduction in weed species. Um, We found that uh, um, farms that adopt cover crops were more likely to reduce uh, the tillage that they used on their farms, which uh, is a lot of benefits for soil health uh, there. Um, And uh, one question we ask farmers is, if they thought that their old system worked better. And very, very few um, responded that their old system worked better. So even though farmers are experiencing significant challenges, it appears that uh, uh, the group of farmers we spoke to were confident that cover crops had a place on their farm, uh, which just goes to show how hard they've been working and uh, innovating ways to bring cover crops to a prairie environment.
1: I found interesting, one of the quotes in the release said that the early adopters of cover cropping was considered a lonely pursuit. It's something that's very <laughs> new. Uh, but I would imagine that one of the challenges is that a farmer in Nipawin, Saskatchewan would probably be looking at different combinations of crops compared to somebody, you know, in southern Manitoba. And that's all a learning process, mm-hmm. too, I would assume.
0: Yes, yes. Um, Cover crops are very, very, very specific to um, the individual farm, and um, the prairies has such a vast um, climate, such different soils, and every farmer uh, has different windows at which they can grow a cover crop, Uh, and they also... um, have different goals so if a farmer is considering to grow cover crops they really need to first think what do I actually want to achieve with these cover crops you know what issues do I have um you know maybe if you're an organic farmer the biggest thing to you is uh improving uh night uh getting nitrogen um so then you'll look at legumes you'll look um you'll need to think if you want one that can overwinter one that will winter kill and um, your work back from that way to try and get something which is specific for you it's um prairie farmers if, if it's something you need uh, they want to consider they're going to have to spend uh, a while uh thinking about it uh it's not as easy as uh, some people may uh, have you believe uh, and uh but that means you're going to get uh, the best fit for your farm and uh the best chance of success
1: Cover crops have been uh, something that the federal government has mentioned, uh, something that they would like to see more of um, in terms of, of the environment. What, what are the environmental advantages of cover cropping as opposed to conventional cropping?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, cover crops have a potential to provide uh, many, many, many environmental and agronomic benefits uh, for farmers and society as a whole. Um, the major benefits, which uh, um, a lot of farmers as well saw in this survey, is uh, reductions in water and wind erosion. So uh, basically, when you're covering that soil, um, it's not going to get the impacts from uh, the rain and uh, the sheer force of the wind. Um, so the soil be held in place. But you also um, see the ability of uh, cover crops that when they, any plant is actively growing in the field, there is uh, root exudates returned to the soil, which feed the soil biology. So we're really promoting the soil microbiota and nutrient cycling, which is uh, really essential for healthy soil. But uh, cover crops are also known to improve the structure of the soil. And uh, in turn, improve uh, infiltration, which uh, um, is very important, especially in a region like ours on the prairies, where we can have uh, flooding events. So it's it's beneficial not just to uh, to farmers, but beneficial to everyone who lives uh, in this in this environment. And uh, of course, the government's very keen because um, whenever well. Cover crops when they grow and then uh, when they die, uh, a lot of the organic matter that is um, uh, in their biomass is uh, is deposited into the soil. So then we have a potential to uh, sequester some carbon, which uh, you know can have a positive effects uh, um, for our greenhouse gas emissions. And then you have uh, the fantastic ability of uh, Uh, legumes, uh, so peas, beans, uh, uh, cover crops to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere. And uh, so that's a great way for farmers, particularly organic farmers, to not have to use artificial uh, nitrogen. And um, many types of cover crops as well, like um, uh, cereal cover crops, are very good at scavenging excess nitrogen. Uh, that's left over on your field to stop it being washed away in uh, in runoff. So, yeah, I could talk for <laughs> <laughs> talk for hours about this. Uh, so there's many, many uh, environmental benefits that cover crops can contribute towards.
1: Uh, this uh, survey information has been compiled. Uh, what is the next step? How do you, you've shared it now, but how are you uh, planning on using this moving forward?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to uh, say that uh, I think the most valuable this report will be will be in the hands of farmers. So that's uh, why I'm talking to you today and uh, why I'm uh, trying to ensure that uh, farmers can uh, have a look at this and uh, they can see the challenges other farmers have faced and then they can start to think ways around these challenges and really innovate learn from other farmers what, they've, uh, what works well and what doesn't. And I really hope that uh, agronomists, policymakers, extension, uh, these groups can uh, look at this report and think, where do we go from here? Um, we've been able to identify what these challenges are that are uh, limiting cover crop production and making it difficult for farmers. So my hope is that researchers in particular can look at this and go, This is what farmers are telling us the issue is. How do we go from here? So this report should be seen as the beginning, not the end, that uh, we will be able to build on the successes of this report and uh, make sure that uh, cover crops uh, will uh, continue to go to to strength, strength on the prairies.
1: Alan Morrison is a graduate student with the Department of Plant Science at the University of Manitoba. After the break, we'll hear from Todd Lewis, a Saskatchewan farmer, and he's also the president of the Saskatchewan Agricultural Producers Association, and he will talk about a survey that they've been conducting with farmers to discuss some of the challenges they've faced with their grain contracts
0: digging into the topics that matter to you. The agri with Alice McFarlane.
1: Even producers that signed modest production contracts ended up paying the difference when they didn't grow enough crop to meet the terms of the deal. Rising grain prices also made those settlements even more expensive, and there doesn't appear to be a standard way of dealing with these grain contracts. The Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan has received more than 175 farmers farmer responses so far to its grain contract survey. Todd Lewis is the president of APAS. Uh, Todd, how have producers mentioned concerns about price discovery for that buyout option?
2: You know, where are the numbers coming from? Uh, they vary from company to company. There are some comments around barley contracts that talk about futures market for uh, barley, and that doesn't even exist, so especially on the, you know, crops like oats, barley, and so on, it's it's very difficult to uh, peg a price for a buyout. So that's one of the uh, issues, kind of a common thread through a lot of the of the comments that we've seen. And, uh, you know, we had one uh, producer specifically talk about how a banking institution had uh, part of his financing options. One of the things he had to do as far as getting his financing in place for last spring was, was for a contract, 75% of his estimated bushels that he was going to grow that year. So course, he went ahead and did that. Well, then he didn't grow the crop, and so I mean, as a condition of financing, he had he had to contract, and uh, so between the uh, financial institution and the grain company, now he's going to end up having uh, to foreclose. So it's just uh, you know compounded by some of the decisions that had to be made. From some of the financial institutions that wanted people to contract, and uh, and uh, farmers are frustrated that uh, you know some some of the some of the commodities we trade in, such as uh, malt barley. If you don't have a contract, you're really not going to be in the game as far as being able to deliver malt barley in a, a lot of years. So, lots of confusion, lots of frustration, and uh, we sure sure hope that we can get some uh, different contracts set up for next year that have a lot more clarity and simply worded and better understanding of, on the farmer side of things.
1: Well, I'm sure over the course of the last few weeks, uh, you've heard a lot of cases where a producer couldn't fill a canola production contract, just as an example. Um, does each company have their own method of settling? And do you look at the daily price as the basis of the settlement? How, how does that all work?
2: It seems to be all over the map, And uh, that's part of the issue that uh, producers here, even from uh, area to area or delivery point to delivery point, producers are getting treated differently within the system you know and, and depending on how much you have contracted and and uh there's lots lots that goes into it so you know the long-term relationship with the company and of course uh how the settlement is, is arrived at as well so there's a lot of different factors at play and uh none of them are very transparent and uh all producers understand the idea that they signed a contract they need to make up the difference that's that's fine but uh a real common uh, thread of uh, of conversation in all of the surveys. The penalties and administration fees really seem excessive when the producer didn't grow the crop. They understand the idea of uh, putting those fees in place for somebody that wants to get out of the contract so they can participate in a higher price within the market. But if you didn't grow the crop, it's a pretty hard pill to swallow, not only to Pay the difference out, but but also uh, pay those those penalties that uh, can really be quite onerous in an already difficult situation where there's such a wide price spread between what you contract and what the current price is.
1: Are you hearing about producers just saying, no, they're not going to be signing production contracts, or if they do sign a contract, that it's going to be for a very small percentage of production as a result of what's been happening this fall?
2: I think producers are looking for uh, more talk around uh, some form of standardized contract that, uh, you know, has a set number of uh, clauses in it that producers understand that are favorable to both the producers and grain companies and a lot more simpler language and, and uh, much more transparent if, if we do run into trouble. So I think uh, that's what producers are going to be looking for. Uh, at APAS, we're uh, starting to talk more and more about a standard contract. And uh, the template's already there within the industry on uh, the machinery side of, of uh, our industry. Uh, there's a common contract there when you buy. doesn't matter what color paint you buy. You sign a very similar contract for the rules and regulations that are in place for machinery dealers. So I think, you know, that's what producers are looking for, is to uh, have a contract uh, that's more fair to both sides. And and, uh, it's important for the industry, too, because uh, it is an important tool for both uh, grain companies and uh, producers to have some forward pricing. But uh, we've got to have contracts that are much more transparent and much more uh, understandable from, from the producer side.
1: Todd Lewis is the president of the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan and uh, the APAS survey is still open and the final results will be released before the end of the year. This is the Agriculture News Roundup for the week of November 1st, 2021. The hot, dry growing season cut into the oil content of the canola crop. Preliminary data from the Canadian Grain Commission pointed to the second lowest oil content of the past two decades. Preliminary sample data showed average oil content for number 1 quality canola in the 2021-22 crop year at 41.9%. That compares with 44.1% recorded the previous year and the five year average of 44.4%. The last time the oil content dipped below 42% was the 2003 04 crop that saw oil levels at only 41.8%. Of the roughly 1,700 number one quality samples studied to date, oil content across all grades, ranged anywhere from 33.9% to 49.4% in Western Canada. October rains brought some relief to dry areas, but meteorologist Drew Lerner said that moisture has not eliminated the drought. There are still many areas that are critically dry, such as eastern and southern Alberta, the western two-thirds of Saskatchewan and portions of Montana. Lerner said there are still many areas that he describes as critically dry, eastern and southern Alberta, the western two-thirds of Saskatchewan and portions of Montana. Lerner expects Saskatchewan will be the region with the poorest levels of winter precipitation, with the exception of the southwest corner of the province, and he does not anticipate any more significant fall moisture events before freeze-up. The Canadian Grain Commission is recommending an 8.4% increase in farm gate milk prices, a large hike that's expected to raise the cost of dairy products on store shelves in the new year. The federal Crown Corporation said the price increase is expected to be approved by provincial authorities next month and take effect February 1st. Sylvain Charlebois with Dalhousie University said the price hike is nearly double the previous record of 4.52% set in 2017. He said the retail price of milk in grocery stores could increase as much as 10%, while prices for dairy products like butter, cheese and yogurt could jump as much as 15%. The Canadian Grain Commission continued to receive formal complaints for late payments on grain deliveries to Cargill. Over the past several weeks, there had been 23 producer complaints covering all three Prairie Provinces. Another three complaints were made after the Commission sent out a tweet asking farmers to contact them if they were having issues. Remy Goslin with the Canadian Grain Commission said if producers are having issues with being paid promptly for grain deliveries, they should contact the CGC immediately. The G3 Canada Elevator at Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan has been named Canadian Pacific's Elevator of the Year. CP presents the award each year to an elevator that achieves high volumes from a single loading point while consistently demonstrating efficient rail car loading and a strong commitment to safety. It is the second time in three years that G3 Pasqua has achieved this distinction. Deer & Company said its latest offer to striking workers is its best and final. The United Auto Workers Union rejected the U.S. tractor maker's latest second contract offer, which included an increase in wages and bonuses. Dear and the UAW union will continue to have talks. Ocean freight rates have been dropping. Due to declining demand out of China, the Baltic Dry Index, which is a major indicator of shipping rates, is at its lowest level in three months. Increasing iron ore stockpiles in China have reportedly slowed demand for large capsized vessels, which are also used to move grain.